This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM Melbourne. Thank you for that last hour of doing time with Marissa. They were covering some devastating police brutality issues against Indigenous peoples, as well as the protest out at Ararat on the Western Highway for some sacred sites down there. So thank you so much for sharing that information with the community, Marissa, and guests. It's 5pm. My name is Adele Mills and welcome to this week's edition of Beyond Zero Emissions, where we look at what's hot and what's not in climate change action. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show and Salut Babette. Tonight's show is about not flying. Now don't switch off. Please don't switch off. I know it's taboo. I know you have to go back to Europe for your daughter's wedding. I know you need to fly for business. I know you've worked all your life and are entitled to travel to those marvellous places overseas. They are listed on your bucket list. I know you just want to see the world. But do you know what those cheap flights really cost? At the Sustainable Living Festival, the New York psychologist Margaret Klein Salomon told us about the bystander effect. You know that experiment where a person goes into a waiting room that slowly fills with smoke and all the other people are actors. They read their books or write text messages as if nothing is happening. The person looks around and does not cry fire. He sits there thinking, well, it must be okay. It must be normal, all this smoke coming in the room. All the others are not reacting. That's called the bystander effect. Margaret Klein Salomon is leading the push to get councils and governments to declare a climate emergency as a first step. Declare the emergency first, then start acting. She says our whole society is behaving like a bystander. Some of us have to start behaving like it really is an emergency. This summer, the million fish dying in the Darling River have been on everyone's conscience. People keep telling me about it. And then the 300,000 cattle in unprecedented floods. We can blame someone else. We can stop Adani. 
We can get government policy to change, but we can also act differently ourselves and be seen to be acting differently. Talk about it. It would help to know what our own carbon footprint actually is. The average European person is responsible for eight tonnes of carbon dioxide per year. If you get a cheap flight to Europe and back just once this year, that's already 10 tonnes. The average Australian's cap carbon footprint is 25 tonnes per year. So even if you don't fly, on average, each one of us is responsible for 25 tonnes. We have to do something. It's no wonder we don't want to know, though. We think, oh, look, I just don't have the time to go Melbourne to Sydney by train. I'm a businessman. I need to be there pronto. I don't have time to go to Europe by flying to Singapore and then taking trains all the rest of the way. That would take weeks, and it will be uncomfortable to travel the slow way. Or people think, I want to go to that conference. I don't want to just appear by Skype. But then think of those dying fish. Think of the children who are saying, you are destroying our future. So tonight's show brings us a very original person, Maya Rosen from Sweden. She had a baby and she started wondering why it was so uncomfortable and awkward for her to talk to other mothers who were flying off for holidays in Spain and Turkey and so on. She couldn't raise it. It seemed socially unacceptable, taboo. And I feel the same thing because I travel by train everywhere and my friends go fulfill their bucket list all the time and tell me about it and I seem like the bad fairy at the party, you know, casting gloomy thoughts in the air. So Maya Rosen appeared by Skype on a large screen at the Sustainable Living Festival and David Spratt asked her the most penetrating questions. You will see how sympathetic she is. I think if we were in a, if the third world war had broken out, I think then everyone would be willing to sacrifice anything for us to regain peace. And I think climate change is just as serious as a world war. So I think before booking a flight, you should consider, would I take this risk if we were in a, world, in a war? If so, then maybe you need to go on that flight. But otherwise, I think people now in the next coming years, as we said before, we have one decade to cut our emissions in half. She started a movement which has caught on, but it isn't in Australia yet. It's called Flight Free. So I looked up the UK version. It's called flightfree.co.uk and I pledged not to fly this year or next year, and my name went on a database of international pledges. You could do that. Or you, if you're listening to one of the many listeners to Beyond Zero Emissions, you might decide to start that movement here. It's an a, a idea of getting a groundswell of people joining up and pledging one thing and then talking about it, getting visibility. Maya's idea is that if 100,000 people do it in each country, we can see we are not alone, number one. But also the travel industry can see us. And already they have stopped laughing at Maya Rosen and they are scrambling to create holidays by train in Europe. I don't know what the alternatives are in Australia. We have to think it through, but start by not flying, except if it's extremely urgent. So, you know, all of that optional travel, leave it on the side. <laughs> 
After Maya, we'll hear Mark Carter, whose booklet is called The Elephant in the Sky. He talks about the hazards of aviation emissions and how we can avoid them. As aviation is one of the quickest growing sources of greenhouse gas emissions, it could drive global emissions over 5 degrees centigrade by itself. Now, most of us do not understand that. We haven't heard that before, have we? That just aviation could push up the, um, you know, way over the Paris targets, which were 1.5 degrees. actually that only 5% of the world's people really fly. And guess who they are? They are people in the rich countries and the rich people in the developing countries. And they are on the increase. This was one of the most reflective sessions at Sustainable Living Festival to my mind because we've heard a lot about declaring the emergency but I want to know what do what? What, what will it look like? And people in that session were coming to grips with what living the emergency really means. They talked about carbon offsets, and that was roundly, you know, discussed as, well, not much use. So don't, you know, fool yourself with offsets. The thing is to stop flying, for this decade at least. It has to come from below as a mass movement, because even the Paris Climate Agreement ignores aviation and shipping emissions. The industry lobbied so successfully for self-regulation that they've got exactly what they want. And this, um, their emissions will be growing by 360% in the next 30 years if we don't stay on the ground. Now, voluntarily doing that seems a little bit chancy, doesn't it? And there have been many people looking into schemes for carbon allowances, both for aviation and other type of travel fuel. So just you fill up your card, car and it goes on a little Mikey card, how much fuel, how many car, what's your carbon footprint is, and your carbon allowance tots up and then you know when you're over your carbon allowance and you have to buy more allowance from other people who haven't used so much. So aviation would blow most Australians out of the water if we had a carbon allowance. Uh, but at least it would show us, let us know what we are responsible for. And it's not the whole world, just the elites in the developing countries and most of us in the rich countries. Kevin Anderson said that if the top 10% in the rich countries um, lowered their emissions to the average European, just that eight tonnes per person that the European person has, then you know, we would be lowering global emissions right now by about 30%. You know, we could lower them by those things, you know, uh, and on top of that, stop Adani, and on top of that, turn around the, um, you know, divest from fossil fuels, build all the wind turbines that we like. But just by not flying, not using our cars so much, cutting down efficiencies in our carbon footprint, we would cut the actual world emissions by 30%. Of course, personal change is not the whole story, but remember that bystander effect. If you stopped flying for a year and talked about it to others, telling people why you cannot fly to see your grandchild in Quebec, for example. You might say, well, it's so that my grandchild has a future. So thank you to Mark Carter and to Maya Rosen for taking us on a compelling journey through a subject that we do not want to face. Thank you to David Spratt, who was the MC of the session. It was called Plain Stupid at the Sustainable Living Festival. 
So please fasten your seatbelts. Don't switch off. We're going to learn about not flying. Um, it's my great pleasure now to, to welcome to this festival Maya Rosayen. Uh, Maya from Sweden and her neighbour founded a project called We Stay on the Ground, a movement which aims to spread awareness of the climate impacts of air travel. Maya, to start with, you launched a new initiative called Flight Free 2020, in which people pledged to stay underground for a year. What was the moment when you thought, I have got to do this, I have got to act on this? Hi everyone. Uh, well, there were quite a few things leading up to this moment. Uh, to me, it, um, it started with that uh, when I 10 years ago realized just how serious the climate crisis is, I decided to give up flying. And ever since, I've been struggling a bit to know how to speak to people when they tell me about their flights, because part of me hasn't wanted to destroy the mood, but I've also been so worried about climate change. So often I ended up saying nothing at all but then regretted it afterwards. And uh, last year I was on parental leave and I had this newborn baby and uh, I was hanging out a lot with uh, other newly become mothers and they were often talking about flights. And I went home and I was lying there thinking, how is it possible to be more scared to destroy the mood than for a climate collapse when I had this little baby? So I decided that last year's New Year's resolution would be to dare to be a bit socially inconvenient and start asking people if they're not worried about climate change the next time they tell me about their flights. And uh, I began to do so, and at first I felt quite uncomfortable. One of the first people I asked was my neighbor who was traveling to Vietnam, and uh, he's also my landlord, so <laughs> I really want to have a good connection with him. But I asked him uh, if he knew how much uh, this trip would emit and if he was not worried about climate change. And after speaking to him and some other people, I realized that it's actually possible to speak to people about this. Uh, we had really good conversations. And uh, I also realized that most people are not at all aware of just how big the climate impact from flying is. Uh, and after realizing that, and also um, the flying debate in Sweden really started in January last year. And then I felt like the time is now, I have to start running this campaign. Uh, I actually came up with the idea years before, but I wasn't brave enough to start doing it. Uh, but then that was the point when I decided that it's now or never, so. Fantastic story. So um, you have a goal to get 100,000 people make this commitment, and you've now expanded that across several European countries, including Sweden, Denmark, and the UK. So. How does this process of making a commitment work? And are these countries competing with each other as to who's the most virtuous? How is this going to play out? Well, it works in the way that you, you promise to take a year without flying next year, but only if you reach the target of 100,000 people from your country signing up. So this is a way to motivate those who otherwise wouldn't have done this, because a lot of people feel that, why should I give up flying when everyone else is flying so much? So this way, it's the way that we actually do something, many people together, that will make a big difference. Uh, and we did run this campaign, and since I started it in Sweden last year, uh, it took six months to get the first thousand people to sign up, but uh, the last days before New Year's Eve, about a thousand people a day signed up. So in the end, we had uh, almost 15,000 people signing up, but I think this year, I have very high hopes to reach the goal, because people 
are aware of this campaign now and it spread to, as you said, other countries. It's also just started in Denmark and in the UK and there are some other countries uh, starting as well. So I think it, uh, it's also can be a bit of a challenge between countries as well. I think um, most people, even if climate change is an extremely serious matter, I think a lot of people they like they like a challenge, and I think it's more motivating to see that people all over the world are willing to do something. Uh, so that's why we have this goal. But of course, we're hoping that e everyone who sign up will choose to have a flight-free year or a flight-free life anyway. Fantastic. Um, there are a lot of institutions who are dependent on uh, air travel. Um, we have a particular case that we just talked about in Australia with universities. So in terms of the institutions like governments, like NGOs, who non-government organisations, even environment and climate groups who can be quite addicted to flying as well, um, and government, has there been any response or any conversation from them about this issue or is there a golden silence? I think there's quite a lot going on in Sweden right now. Um, last year, uh, the government introduced a tax on aviation uh, it's very low so far. I think it's about four euros extra to go on a flight within Europe, and um, or six euros, sorry, and then up to 40 euros if you go on a long-distance flight. But even if the tax is very low, it has contributed to this flying debate. Um, and uh, I think, for example, here I live near uh, a city called Gothenburg, and I know that our university is... Uh, I think it's famous all over the world for being very sustainable, but uh, when it comes to emissions from air traveling, uh, that's rising. But I think they are also starting to address this um, issue now. And it's been, um, I think, a lot of companies are looking over their um, how much their um, employees are traveling. Uh, just a couple of days ago, one of Sweden's biggest magazines for business people actually challenged their readers to cut their, their um, the flights in half through work. So I think that wouldn't have happened a couple of years ago. So there are a lot of things going on. But at the same time, even if the government introduced this tax on aviation, they are still planning to build new airports and expanding our main airport in Stockholm. So uh, it, it, it's both ways. I was wondering whether you've had any response from the tourism, the airline or the travel industry. Have they tried to challenge you in public? Are they ignoring you and hoping you will go away? Have you had an opportunity to debate anybody from those industries at all or have your paths not clashed yet? Well, unfortunately, we haven't had the chance to have a debate with them. I would love to because I feel that they, there are no arguments <laughs> against this. So I think they, they uh, probably don't would rather avoid talking to us but i think when it comes to the travel sector and the the demand for uh, for example train vacations here in sweden has exploded uh for example there's a facebook group called the train vacation and it's gone from a couple of thousand members to fifty thousand members in a very short time so i think travel companies are going to offer train vacations more easily but when it comes to uh, aviation companies I think they, remain, they will remain silent, but I actually I heard a rumor saying that when they started, uh, they were just laughing, but uh, that nobody is laughing anymore now. So we'll see, but it, it's been a big change um, in attitudes towards flying in Sweden this last year, definitely. And are there efforts or a need to increase the capacity of your um, train services across Europe? Is, is there 
policy efforts by government to, to provide alternatives in a way which are attractive to people in terms of trains? Yes. I, I think they are planning. I, I for example, interviewed the, the, the manager of the public railway, and I think they are trying to find solutions to make it easier, because at the time now, it's very difficult to book train vacations. It's very complicated. It's not at all like when you, go, when you book a flight, you just go online and you do it in two minutes. So I think uh, it's been discussed to you know build out the railway and everything, but uh, I think any of these solutions, they won't happen in time because, as the previous speaker said, we have to decrease our emissions now. So the only way to, to decrease emissions from flying uh, in the near nearest future it is to is actually to give up flying uh, until we've um, managed to reduce our emissions. Um, when I was doing a little bit of research for this event, I watched an interview with you on BBC and before the clip of you, there was an, an advertisement from a Middle Eastern airline. Uh, I don't know whether an algorithm was deliberately putting the advertisement next to your event. It seems somewhat like sabotage. Um, air travel is ubiquitous. It's everywhere in, in people's lives. Has this led to difficult... Uh, you know you talked about your landlord. Has this led to difficult uh, conversations with friends and families? I mean... We have a rule here saying that at Christmas time you can't talk about um, religion, sex and politics and climate change and air travel. I think we've just added to that list. Is, th is this been a, a, a cause of difficult conversations? Well, I think uh, it's been, to me, uh, since I started this campaign, it's been such a relief because now everybody knows how I feel about this. But also it's been... I think talking about aviation in terms of what we all can do together rather than just like why do you fly as one individual, uh, it sort of takes, I don't know, people don't get offended if you just talk about what a big difference they could make for the climate by signing up to this campaign, for example. But I think when you speak about flying to people, there are some things I've learned that are really important and it is to show understanding for why they're still flying because people don't like to feel that you think they are selfish or that they don't care. Uh, so I think it's important to say that I understand that you're not aware of this because everyone else is flying and we get so many double messages. Uh, we hear about climate change, but then we see all these flying commercials and the flying companies, they say it's not a problem. Uh, and the flying norm is so strong. So I think it's important to show understanding, but also to ask questions rather than explaining how it is. I think it's very powerful to ask a person if they are aware of how much they personally emit or how much their flight is emit per year because most people are not aware of this at all. And uh, I think by asking questions, you make people start thinking. Uh, so to me, I think it's been, instead of feeling uncomfortable, I've had some very interesting conversations with people. Uh, rather than just having this small talk, I've had really interesting conversations about <laughs> life and, and everything. So I think, I think I'm so happy that I was brave enough to start doing this because it was not at all as scary or uncomfortable as I imagined it would be. And I think the more people who start talking about this, uh, the more we will actually create awareness around this because it is possible to affect people. Uh, I've spoken to many people this year that has gone from 
flying a lot. Uh, on average, a Swedish person, we fly abroad once a year, uh, a distance between Sweden and Spain, which is not that far, but only by that journey we emit over a ton of carbon dioxide. Uh, and I've spoken to people who fly way more than that, who's gone from that to deciding to never fly again. And also, what's very fascinating is that once people make this decision to give up flying, they want everyone else to follow their example. <laughs> And they also want to put demands on the politicians. So I think even if it is the politicians that should solve this, I think if we're going to make this in time, we really need to uh, make everyone aware of this issue. Thank you. Um, in Australia, if a, an Australian flies to London and back economy class, it is equivalent to 10 tonnes of carbon dioxide. So our issues are really yeah. big. You're saying that people becoming aware of the climate impact, literally how many tonnes or what's associated with their flights has been important in motivating people not to fly, that they don't have the knowledge of the impact of the flights? Yeah, most people I've spoken to, they are aware that climate, uh, that flying is not good for the climate, but not just how bad it is. Uh, and for some people, it's enough to have this knowledge to make them give up flying. But the, the thing that affects people the most, I've realised, is knowing that somebody else around them has given up flying. So that's why I think this campaign is so important and it's been really interesting to see that if I speak to people and I tell them that this person and this person and that person that they also know have given up flying, then you can really see a reaction. And I think it's definitely not a coincidence that so many, I live on a, on a quite a small island on the Swedish west coast. It's about 1500 people living here. And I think here the norm has definitely started to change. Uh, and most of my neighbors around here have signed up a campaign or decided to give up flying uh, completely. And I think it's really interesting to see how you are affected by those around you rather than just these alarm reports about uh, climate change. Cyclones is pretty grim. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. Six years ago, I uh, wrote a letter to a, a very old friend in London explaining why I wouldn't be flying to his 50th birthday because of the warming effects of aviation emissions. With my first line in the sand, then I shut up. How could I... Uh, I found it difficult to say the same thing face to face at home. How could I undermine friends' exhilarating travel stories? Then I took another step. I researched and wrote The Elephant in the Sky, informing myself and those who read it of the work of many in cataloguing the hazards of aviation emissions. A proxy, I kidded myself, for speaking out loud. My next move was suggesting to the organisers of this festival that they hold a no-fly festival next year. They replied, why don't you first talk about aviation emissions this year? Checkmate. So here I am today, hoping to enthuse you all too to talk about and possibly take action on that taboo topic. So what... So what does the research 
tell us. First, in a world needing to reduce its emissions, what's happening with those from aviation? Second, what aviation emissions reductions are in the works or possible? What reductions are necessary? And third, what response can provoke the required emissions reductions? Okay, first, what's happening with aviation emissions? Well, they're booming and they're catastrophic. Within 30 years, aviation emissions are predicted to be over three times greater than now, booming by 360%, because we're flying more. Each year, more than one in four Australians flies overseas at least once, with over a million of us flying overseas three or more times a year. With those flights to Europe and back, for example, creating emissions roughly equivalent to half a year's worth of an average Australian's emissions. Our export figures, as David has just mentioned, illustrate the size of aviation in our economy. As he said, the international student industry, entirely dependent on aviation, is our third biggest export earner. Infrastructure growth is also an indicator. On the back of expected passenger demand growth, new airports and expansions to existing airports, including new runways, are in the works for Melbourne, Sydney, Perth and Adelaide. Okay, so how catastrophic are these booming emissions anyway? Aviation is the transport sector's biggest emitter and most warming per kilometre travel. Because emissions from jet engines high in the atmosphere have a warming effect possibly more than five times greater than the same amount of fuel burnt on the ground. Left unchecked, aviation emissions alone could drive warming to five degrees within 80 years. Bill Hemmings, Aviation Director of Transport and Environment, the European NGO campaigning for cleaner transport, sums it up when he says, taking a plane is the fastest and cheapest way to fry the planet. So, aviation emissions are booming and catastrophic. How are we going with aviation emissions reductions? What emission reductions mechanisms are in place or possible? The bad news is that reductions of the order needed are blocked by three obstacles. First up, they're hidden. We have ignored international aviation emissions reductions because they're not included in our Paris Agreement pledges. They're unregulated in that the international aviation industry's plan for tackling aviation emissions allows them to continue to grow. The illusion of emissions reductions is created through the smoke and mirrors of emissions offsetting, whereby a deceptive aviation industry takes the credit for the emissions reductions of others. Lack of regulation has also allowed international jet fuel to remain tax-free, unlike the fuel for other transport modes. In all, an annual 80, 60, sorry, 60 billion euro fuel tax evasion 
or fossil fuel subsidy. Obstacle three, aviation emissions are tech neutral. Altered flight paths, increased fuel efficiency, battery power and biofuels are all alike in delivering minimal emissions reductions in the near future. Altered flight paths could deliver reductions of around 12%. New fuel standards established by the ICAO could reduce emissions by only 11%. And electric aviation, powered by batteries at low enough costs and high enough power to weight ratios for long haul flights is decades away. Biofuel production in quantity, enough to replace growing jet diesel demand, is not possible. Most biofuels work only in a jet diesel mix. All biofuel production at scale is constrained by limits on the availability of feedstock. Dr Scott Cohen of the University of Surrey summarises the technical situation. Quote, the way in which, we, which new aviation technologies are presented constitutes a myth, a form of propaganda which denies the truth that progress in climate policy for aviation has stalled. The use of these technology myths by government and industry relieves anxiety that nothing is being done by pointing to future miracle solutions which in reality are unfeasible. So, what reductions are likely necessary to prevent runaway warming? Our Paris reduction commitments are a path to more than three degrees of warming and closer to five degrees, that is, a temperature at which society will have unravelled, when we take into account the warming released from feedbacks, such as melting permafrost, that are triggered by human-made warming. For a safe high prob probability of avoiding catastrophic runaway warming, there is no carbon budget remaining. That is, there is no carbon we can safely burn on the ground or in the air. Every tonne we continue to emit will have to be drawn back down. In the words of Al Gore, we have a global emergency. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warns that in climate change, we face a direct existential threat. Professor Shelley Huber, for 20 years the head of the Potsdam Institute for, climate, Institute for Climate Impact Research and a senior advisor to Pope Francis, German Chancellor Angela Merkel and the European Union, says, humanity must choose between taking unprecedented action or accept that it has been left too late and bear the consequences. Okay, so, finally, how then can we respond? How can we promote the required reductions in aviation emissions, public policy-wise, as a community, and personally? Acknowledging the crisis is not enough. As in a bushfire, it's how we respond that's most important. Drastic and rapid reductions should have been underway yesterday. Our response over the next 10 years is therefore critical. What response would reduce aviation emissions to the extent necessary? The answer is obvious. Stopping flying will do it. But hang on a minute, we say. 
Well, those amongst the 5% on the planet who fly say, we value flying. Everyone's doing it. Even those concerned about climate change. How can it be a, pro a problem when it enables so much? Jet travel is normal. So, flying is now both extremely dangerous and at the core of our identity, placing our physical and mental worlds in conflict. Maybe we can better connect with the Scott flying response by comparing it to our responses to other emissions. Unlike, for example, switching from coal-fired electricity to wind or solar power, and still being able to turn on the lights as normal, for aviation, there is no easy switch, no alternatives to jet diesel that enables us to continue to fly as normal and emissions-free. Put another way, it's impossible for those concerned about global warming to continue as normal and stop aviation emissions. Therefore, stopping aviation emissions is only possible outside normal, in abnormal. Like when a raging bushfire is on the ridge, we forget the normal, the TV show we're watching. We do abnormal, like putting our most precious things in the car and leaving home possibly forever things we'd otherwise not do. This abnormal is an enabling place. It's here, and only here, in the abnormal, where the needed response to our climate predicament, the emergency response, is possible. Where society puts on hold the way we're doing things now, the normal, and prioritises implementing a safe climate plan. In this way, the stop flying message, aside from being a call to action on the way we travel, brings the abnormal emergency response pathway into sharp focus. If we're in a normal world, the stop flying message is a massive challenge. When we recognise we're in an abnormal world, because we can't stop aviation emissions and keep flying, then staying grounded is a no-brainer. So now let's get practical. What public policy responses, possible in this abnormal world, would constrain demand? Options include rationing flights to zero over 10 years through a personal carbon quota scheme, including international aviations in massively more ambitious Paris commitments, halting all airport expansion, and developing land-based zero emissions alternative travel modes such as high-speed rail networks. Such policies would do the heavy lifting, or should I say shrinking, of aviation emissions. What then is our role as a community? These and other demand reduction policies can only be implemented if advocated far and wide. If climate action groups and climate NGOs add reducing aviation emissions to their mission. If the rest of us begin talking about our 
abnormal world. The place where our despair, exhaustion and frustration at trying to fit a square peg into a round hole of trying to effectively stop calamitous warming within a business as usual world is a thing of the past. How about our individual responses? As well as talking abnormally, we can start walking in the no-fly zone. Doing so achieves three things. It immediately reduces our emissions. It provides an example to others of meaningful personal action. And it's the emergency response in practice. Uh, great story and congratulations for all that you've done so far. Very inspiring. We might take some questions from our audience. Thank you for those three questions. Um, we'll go to my first um, three questions, whichever of them you wish or to answer the questions of equity, the question of calculators, which might be more a question for Australia, and perhaps the question, Maya, particularly of offsetting, the, 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 the politics, the morality, the effectiveness of carbon offsets for air travel. I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Because I didn't hear you very the, well the, now. The, the, the question was about um, buying offsets if you have to travel. Um, yeah. Do you think that's worthwhile? Is it legitimate? What's your what's your thoughts on offsets? Well, I think uh, as uh, this, I think the person who asked this question said he had elderly parents in Britain or something like that. And I do, and I think this is the most difficult question that I get because I do understand that you want to see family and friends uh, that live abroad. Uh, I do think that if it can be avoided, now is the time to do it because it's we're such in an in, we're in a, such an urgent situation that all flights that can be avoided really needs to be avoided now because it's in everyone's interest to, uh, to um, solve the climate crisis. But I think in some cases, uh, if you go abroad, maybe that is a solution in a way. But I think in that case, it's very important to tell people around you that I do this, I don't want to do this, I've made this decision, I've bought these offsets or how it works. But, uh, I think you're still contributing to to flying, and um, and so I think it's very important that you actually tell people around you that I wish I didn't have to do this, rather than just uh, showing a picture that oh hi I'm, I've gone on a on a long distance flight. Uh, I've spoken to some experts, and they say that we had to we should we should actually do both. We should refrain from flying and uh, have this upsetting. So best of both worlds. Mark. Um, there's extensive literature I uncovered when I was uh, writing uh, The Elephant in the Sky uh, um, questioning the, uh, the minutiae of various offsetting schemes. Um, it's not just a simple, um, a simple decision to uh, take up a, an airline's um, extra fee or for um, carbon offsetting or um, uh, engaging in offsets even in, across other uh, activities. There's um, a whole range of um, uh, lack of regulation and consistency in uh, um, the criteria for measuring 
the effectiveness of, of offsets. Um, you know, whether the, the, the trees that are growing uh, that are the, contribute to the offset by the carbon they draw down, whether they, you know, continue to live for the life that the offset is they're being accredited for. There's a lot of um, uh, discussion about the viability of, um, or the, the authenticity of, of, of offsetting to um, uh, um, swap emissions. But as I said in my talk, um, the uh, off offsets are a, a, a topic um, that's attractive um, if we think that, um, if we don't realise that we're in this climate emergency situation where uh, just transferring aviation emissions or offsetting aviation emissions by some other sector of the economy drawing down emissions. Um, all sectors of society have got to um, reduce their emissions, and we're, we've got to. There's a. We've really got to draw down the carbon that's in the atmosphere that's caused us to get to one one degree already. So, unfortunately, my my, my position on offsets is that they're they're. Um, was Kevin Anderson, um, uh, climate scientist at the Tyndall Centre in uh, the UK, says they're they're really um, worse than. Um, uh, um, sort of flying. They, they contribute um, uh, a lot of... Um, there's a lot of confusion about offsets. I, I, I think Kevin Anderson said it was, it was the modern version of the medieval church selling indulgences. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just on the question of calculators, can you point to a good calculator available in Australia that gives a, a fair go at what the real emissions are? Unfortunately, not. That was that was one area in my in my research that I, I had trouble sort of pinning down. Now I went through to about half a dozen different um, uh, websites, um, sort of government websites, um, NGO websites. Um, there's that um, English author's uh, How Much of the Bananas book that sort of catalogues um, the the carbon emissions of a whole range of activities, um, and that was his uh, figures which seemed the most um, he provided the most uh, detailed explanation of how he got the the 10 tonnes figure for the return flight to London from Australia. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know of any... Um, uh, in my emailing discussions with uh, a few of the websites that had calculators on them, they, uh, following my prompting, they realised that, they, that it, their calculations didn't include the... Um, the, the multiplication of carbon burning that um, happens in the atmosphere. So, yeah, I don't know of any good offset calculator. It's a fraud area. Let's go for, to another three questions. Ten percent of the world's population is responsible for fifty percent of emissions. So, if the, if the top 10% of people stop emitting carbon dioxide, we, we cut our, our, our climate um, warming in uh, addition in, in half. I mean, obviously the same thing is true here. If the 5% of, of the world stopped flying, then the world's fastest growing source of emissions would simply cease to be a source of the problem. What do you say when travel is about families who are split between continents? So it's not about strictly holidays, but about families reuniting? Yeah, I think as I said uh, before, I think it, it is problematic and uh, 
probably especially for you living in Australia, uh, well, it's not possible to go and visit your family in, abroad in other ways than flying. But I really think that considering just how serious the climate crisis is, we really need to avoid uh, doing traveling as much as we can. I think if we were in a, if the third world war had broken out, I think then everyone would be willing to sacrifice anything for us to regain peace. And I think climate change is just as serious as a world war. So I think before booking a flight, you should consider, would I take this risk if we were in a, world, in a war? If so, then maybe you need to go on that flight. But otherwise, I think people now in the next coming years, as we said before, we have one decade to cut our emissions in half. I really think we should try to minimize our air traveling. And I think when it comes to having family abroad, if one person lives abroad and five people lives in Australia, maybe the person who lives abroad should come to Australia instead of vice versa, if you see what I mean. So try to minimize it and try to avoid traveling as much as you can, even if I understand that it's painful. I think the consequences of climate change will be even more painful if we don't do something now. Thank you, Mark. Three questions. Sort of the nub of my presentation was to try and um, get people to appreciate that us here now, at the back of Fed Square, by the Yarra River, we're in a world that's in an abnormal state of climate emergency. Things we do normally, like travelling to visit our relatives overseas and a whole range of other things we do in a normal world, we've got a, it's a real challenge, I know, to understand that we are, we are not in that world. We can't continue to behave as normal. Sounds heartless, I know. So given, given that predicament, as, as Maya said, uh, sort of a, a war equivalent, I think we've got to stop making our decisions uh, on the basis of us living in a normal world. I haven't really researched uh, wind sailing. I know that there's, uh, there are emissions issues with, um, with conventional shipping. I'm all for those technology improvements and alternative technologies to be supported and pursued. But given the, the sort of time frame on the planet warming, we can't really afford to wait for a number of those longer term uh, technology improvements. We've got to stop uh, our emissions sooner than that. Welcome back. You're listening to 3CR 8.55am. Earlier in the program, we heard a song from Hi- Hiatus Coyote. It was Nakamara. Thank you to our guests this week, Maya Rosson and Mark Carter. The program was introduced by your regular host, Vivian Langford. In climate action news around Nam Melbourne this week, there's going to be a 2019 kickoff event for climate for, for change, climate for change, at the Clyde Hotel at 385 Cardigan Street, Carlton. So that's tomorrow night from 6 till 8 p.m. It's going to be a great night full of inspiring stories and creative ways that you can get involved in meaningful climate action in Australia. So get along to that if you can. And you've been listening to Beyond Zero Emissions. My name is Adele Mills and next up will be Communication Mixdown.